Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing this morning? Everybody good? Wave at me if you're happy. <laughs> Just checking, make sure you're listening. Uh, before I get started, I want to wish my wife happy anniversary, 35 years. Woo-hoo! I just performed, thank you, I just performed a ceremony a couple weeks ago with these two guys over here, which is a lot of fun, and uh, Lori was commenting, where is she, is she here today, I can't find her, she's not here, anyway, Lori, a good friend of ours, was there, and she said, I saw you giggling when you saw your wife coming down, she was in the bridal party, and I'm like, I was having flashbacks, (laughs) I remember like 35 years ago, 1986, can you imagine, 1986, I remember staying, I had a little mullet, a little mullet going on in the back, and watching her come out the door and just, that's, I have some memories of my wedding day, but that was the one. That was the one when she walked, she walked out and I saw her. And I was like, is there everything I could do not to cry? I'm like, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. It was amazing. So anyway, that's neither here nor there, I guess. <laughs> but I want to uh, continue a series we've been doing. Um, it's talking about the finished work of Jesus on the cross. A series we started a couple weeks ago called It Is Finished. And so we started out and asked a question about why is it important to study the cross. And so I did a little inception on you guys, and I said, you know, what are the benefits of studying the benefits of the cross? And so part, part of that was to just kind of help us understand what actually happened on the cross, because we all kind of know it happened, right? If you're an American, it's not like you don't know anything about Jesus, most of us do. But um, so much of the inheritance we have from the cross, we actually don't know. So I want to kind of start with a story to kind of illustrate that a little bit. But before I do that, let me just open up with the scripture. This is John 1930. It's kind of where we're launching from. And it says this, it says, when he had received, this is talking about Jesus, it says, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. What was really fascinating about that word is it's just one word in the Greek, and it's teleo. And what it means is, it is finished and always will be finished. It's a very interesting way that Jesus said what he said on the cross. But the question is, most people don't know what it was that he finished. We know it was finished, we hear him say it, but we don't know what the it was that was actually finished. So there's a story of a lumberjack and a city boy. They were in a competition, and so the lumberjack had his trusty axe, and the city boy had his fancy new chainsaw. And so the competition was see how many trees they could cut down in an hour. So they go after it. After an hour, the lumberjack had cut down twice as many trees. The city boy was asked how in the world that was possible when he had such a modern tool. They said, what happened? I mean, did it quit on you, uh, and it took you a long time to get it cranked? To which the city boy replied, what do you mean cranked? (laughs) <laughs> and so we're like that, like we're, we're, we're using the cross in a way that there's almost no power in it so often. We, we're missing the importance of the cross. And so here's a story, another story called Alligator Boy. This is uh, borrowed from a comedian named Shane Smith, um, but it's based on a true story, and I love any story that starts with a Florida man. <laughs> so in 2016, a Florida man robbed a Wendy's with an alligator. It's a true story. You can Google it. You can look it up. So the not-so-obvious question was, for me anyway, did he rob the Wendy's with an alligator or with an alligator? So in other words, was the alligator the accomplice in the crime or was the alligator the weapon, right? And so it turns out, when he faced the charges, the three uh, charges related to the incident, these were the three charges. Petty theft, common sense, right? The unlawful sale, possession, or transporting of an alligator. Welcome to Florida. And then lastly, aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. So that answered my question. He wasn't an accomplice. But I think about this all the time. Ever since I heard this story the first time, I think about 
first of all, like how in the whole world, right, did he get an alligator? And so they, from the news, this is actually from the news report. This is what it says. It says, once approached by authorities, James admitted to having picked up the alligator along the side of the road, driving to Wendy's and throwing the beast through the drive-thru window. Like you can't make this stuff up, right? <laughs> so the lady in the drive-thru window said he, he leaned over into the passenger seat and the next thing she knew, there was an alligator coming, coming at her, right? So this thing was three and a half feet long. Like, it's, you know, normally they grow to about eight feet. So this is half the size of an adult alligator that he managed. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if it was in a car seat or if it was in a booster seat, if he had it strapped in. I don't know, right? I'm just curious about a lot of things. But he grabs this alligator, and he throws it through the window. And so, of course, he gets caught. Um, the judge ordered, this is what finally, the verdict finally came down. This is what the, the judge ordered James to do. To one, stay away from all Wendy's restaurants, <laughs> which is a bummer, right? Because Wendy's is a good restaurant. To avoid possessing any weapons, including alligators, snakes, whatever it might be. To get a mental health evaluation. You don't say, right? <laughs> like, of course he's going to have to do that. And the last thing was this, and I thought this was funny. To limit his contact with animals to his mother's dog. I'm just thinking what, <laughs> what kind of dog that is. He may drive to a McDonald's and throw the dog through the window. But, I mean, what was in his head, right, when he's doing this? Like, how is he going to get the money back out? I mean, I, I just have so many questions. Anyway, so here's the, here's the moral of the story. Um, most, I mean, this guy obviously had no idea how to use an alligator, right? <laughs> right? But if we're all honest, neither do any of you, right? I mean, I wouldn't think you would anyway. But the the Obviously, the moral of the story for this is we don't know how to use the cross. Like, here's this power, this amazing power, this wonder of the cross. And so often we're missing the impact of what it is that the cross can do. And so, of course, we want to we dig into this and dig into aspects of the cross that are provided that provide the inheritance that we have that we can walk in. So you're going to hear a lot of words that end with the suffix T-I-O-N, shun. And so that's just literally a state of being. We're going to start, the first one's called expiation, right? And so probably you don't know that word. It's a theological term, and we're going to get into the depths of it and kind of talk about it. And part of what I want to do is I want to take words like that, and I want to, I want to take the complex, because theology sometimes they get infatuated with how how complex it can actually be because they're impressed with their own ideas, that kind of stuff. And what I want to do is I want to simplify it so it actually makes sense to you and I, and it's useful and helpful to us. So expiation literally means the removal of our sin, right? And so that makes sense. Jesus dies on the cross, and he dies to take our sin away. I've preached about this millions of times. But there's more to it than just the taking away of, the sin, the taking away of our sins. It's also removing the guilt from our having sinned. And that's the part of it I think most of us get the fact that Jesus died for our sin, but then we still tend to carry guilt, shame, and condemnation around with us. And so I want to get into that and just talk about it. But before I do that, I have to give a little bit of context for the cross, context for, for the word expiation. So Israel has a sacrificial system. As you go read the Old Testament, you see that a sacrificial system was instituted in Israel. And so the priests would come, they would make themselves clean, um, they would make everything clean around them, and then they would take animals, and they would, they would take a perfect, spotless, blemish-free animal, and they would kill it, and they would take its blood, and they would sprinkle that blood in, in, into the Holy of Holies, and we're going to get into this in just a second. But the idea behind it was that this animal was a substitution for me. So I've, I've got sin. I've sinned. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against my brother and sister. I've 
I've become part of the pollution that I've created in my culture, and we all kind of understand that and recognize that, how easy that is to happen. You see it, how a community can be corrupted by some kind of sin. And, and, and so the idea behind the, the sacrificial substitution was that God, God needed something. If he wanted to bless us, he wanted to benefit us, but he couldn't do that because we were unholy, we were impure, we stood before him unclean. And so the ritual sacrifices in the sacrificial system was designed to take the impurity away from us so that we could stand pure before God so that he could pour his blessing out on us. So blood was collected from the animal, and again, it was sprinkled different places. We're going to get into that. But this is Leviticus 17.11, kind of gives you an understanding of this. It says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given, I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement, to, to substitute, to to take away your sin for your souls, for it is the blood that makes the atonement. And so one of the things we talk about in understanding grace, understanding the gospel, is that so often we come to God with our version of the sacrificial system. We come and say, God, we're really, really sorry this time. You know, I know I sinned and I shouldn't have sinned and I know I, I'm not made for it. I get all that and I feel really terrible. And so, so I'm really, really sorry. As if your sorrow is enough to pay for your sin. And the truth is, it's not. And, and it wasn't, it's not now, and it wasn't back then either. And so God was trying to show them that when you sin, the Bible says, the, sin, the soul that sins shall surely die. So sin brings death because it cuts us off from the life-giving source that God is. And so when we sin, the Bible says that we have an advocate. Nowadays, we have an advocate with the fathers, what Jesus came to be. But understand the way that that advocate works is you have to go back to the beginning and understand the way the sacrificial system worked. So there's a type of substitution, a type of sin offering, something in the place of you. God wants to pour out his kindness and his blessing on you, but he can't because you're unclean, you're impure, and he wants to pour his life out on you, but he can't because you're dead and you're separated by your trespasses. So there's this one particular day, big elaborate sin offering called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, um, the Jewish people call it. And it was essentially, again, just an elaborate sin offering. So here's what would happen on that day. First of all, the high priest was the only one who could do any work that day. And even then, he had to dress in linen. And the reason he dressed in linen, it was very specific. He had a linen turban, he had a linen jacket, linen pants, everything about him. He had to be wearing this specific kind of material. Two reasons. One, the color of it, white, it was purity, right? It represented purity. And secondly, it, it allowed him it, to not perspire. So he would do the work of the priesthood, but he couldn't sweat. It couldn't be from his work that the sacrifice had come. Does that make sense? So he had to, he had to wear linen on, on, because of that. And so he would come in, and the first thing he would do is he would change into these garments. He would wash. At, at some point, he washes his hands, and he washes himself something like 40-something times that day. So it was a really, really big day. started early in the morning with the regular sacrifices, and then they moved into the Day of Atonement. And the idea behind it was this is the big day that the sin of Israel is covered for one more year that the judgment of God is going to be poured out on the, on, the, on the people of Israel because of their sin, and rightfully so. But on the Day of Atonement, this sin is going to be pushed back. The judgment of God will be pushed back one more year, and they will be clean um, symbolically, if you will. They weren't, they weren't completely clean, but symbolically they were clean. And so the, the priest, the high priest, would come in and he would take the bull of a goat, 
he would sacrifice, uh, sorry, the, the, the blood of a bull, and he would sacrifice the bull, and he would take that blood, and he would, he would uh, sprinkle it for himself and for his family, and then he would go into, the, into different areas of the temple, and he would sprinkle the blood there. And the idea behind that was he had to be, to make a sacrifice, he himself had to be pure. So he had to make himself pure, first of all. Right? Then he had, to, he had to make a sacrifice for his family's sake because his family was impure. And then the place, the temple, the Holy of Holies, all of that had to be made, made pure. And the whole idea behind it was that God could not come and live in something that was unclean or impure. See how that worked? So it was a really, really big deal. And so he goes in, he sprinkles the blood for himself, he washes himself, he puts on all these garments, he uh, takes the, the blood of the bull and he sacrifices that for himself and for the place. And the whole idea behind this is he would sprinkle it into these places so that it would make it clean, so that the presence of God could actually come and consume the sacrifice. And then he did something really interesting. Um, and this was only on the Day of Atonement. He would take two goats. They would bring two goats in. And this is in Leviticus 16 if you want to check it out. We would take two, two goats and they would bring them, he would bring them before the people, and they would face east, which is where the people were, right? That's where the worshipers were. And he would face the goats east, and he would draw lots. And what it was is there were like two wooden implements inside of a container, and he would take these out. And one of them said for the Lord, and the other one said for Azazel, which is just a, a, the word is, all it means is, um, is, is to be taken away and to be released out into the wilderness. That's what the word means. So he would take those, and he would draw lots on which, which goat was which. And he would open his hand, and then they would identify the goats. And the goat that was for the Lord, he would kill it. And so the whole idea behind this is that sin had caused death in us. Sin had caused impurity. Sin had caused uncleanness. And the wrath of God, because of our sin, was abiding upon us. And so a life had to be given for a life. That was the idea. Blood, the life was in the blood. And so the goat was killed. The blood was taken in substitution for your blood. So this animal had to die, even though it was innocent, and you got to live even though you were guilty. And he would take that blood, and he would take it into the Holy of Holies, and he would, he would sprinkle the blood seven times on the altar, uh, on the mercy seat, the covering um, uh, of, the, uh, of the mercy seat. And he would, he would come back out, and he would take the other goat, and he would face it towards the people. And he would take his hands, and he would press down on the head of the goat. And while he was doing that, he would confess the sins of all the people of Israel, and he would transfer their sins symbolically from their life onto the life of this goat. And so he would, again, he would just pour, he would pour out the sin of the people onto this goat, and then he would do something really interesting. They would take someone who was not a natural-born Israelite, and they would put him at the gate outside of the city, and they would take that goat, and they would lead it out to that man, and that man would begin to walk east and he would go because that's where the people were and he was take this goat was taken had taken all of their sin upon him and that goat would they would lead that that man would lead that goat and then um there would be an israelite who would walk half a day's journey with him and then half a day back because they couldn't walk more than a, a day's journey on the sabbath right so they they would walk halfway and then back and then someone would pick him up to keep the eye on the goat right to make sure that that goat was going farther and farther and farther away until at some point, um, by Jesus' day, they would take that goat. The, the literal translation in the book of Leviticus was that it would wander in the wilderness never to be seen again, right? And 
Jesus' day, they would, by the time Jesus had come along, they would take this goat and they would take it up onto a cliff and they would back it over the cliff and it would fall to its death. And the symbology, either way, was there. And what this actually means is, again, the first goat was taking the, the penalty of death upon itself uh, on our behalf. But what was interesting is that was just the part about not dying, right? So we, there's a beautiful thing about coming to the cross and saying, Lord, thank you that, that even though I deserve death, you're not going to give it to me because of what Jesus did. But the one we forget is that both of those goats was one sin offering. So it wasn't enough to just die the death, which obviously Jesus did on the cross. But there was something else that occurred in that second goat that we so often forget that becomes a massive inheritance of the cross. And so you find this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, just laid out as plain as day. He said, uh, this is Paul speaking to the church, he said, God made him, talking about Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. So, so here's an innocent, perfect lamb, right? Jesus, it's a fascinating thing, Jesus is known as the Lamb of God, there's symbology in, in that, but in this sin offering they use goats. Now why did they use goats and not a lamb, right, for this offering? On, on the Paschal day, they, on, on the uh, um, Certain days they would offer lambs, but on this day they offer goats. Why is that? Goats are symbolic of rebellion. Anybody ever been around a goat? <laughs> Good luck, right? As they could have used a donkey, I guess, too. But, but goats have been sim- symbolic of rebellion and stubbornness. And that was the picture of God's people all of the time. So the law was poured out on the people of God. The law was never designed to make them holy. All it was designed to do was to show them that they weren't. That makes sense. And so God's longing, longing to pour out his permanent blessing on their life. He's longing to to take away their sin. He's longing over and over. I read this last week. He wants to come and he wants to be with his people. Like in the book of Genesis, all the way throughout the entire Bible, you see the story of God saying, "I, I made you so I could be with you. I want you. But you have sinned, you have cut yourself off from me, and now because I'm holy, I can't come into your presence and you can't come into mine. So here's this big dilemma, now what? So obviously the Bible says from the beginning of time, before the foundations of time, a lamb was offered was offered as a sacrifice, signifying that Jesus was going to come at some point and take away the sins of the world, right? The whole world, the whole world. He took all of the sin for all of the world for all of time right? But it's not automatic. Jesus' offering for us is free, but it's not automatic. There's something that we have to do, and we're going to get into that in the series. So what does this mean to me? He was made sin with our sinfulness so that we could be made right with his righteousness. It's a big exchange, and you don't get it any other way. There's nothing that you can do to make yourself righteous. As a matter of fact, the harder you try, it's called literally self-righteousness, and it's, it's, it's totally anti-everything grace and everything God. And so Jesus became our scapegoat, obviously. Jesus paid for the price of our sins. He wiped away the required death penalty that was resting upon us, the wrath of God resting upon us. Isaiah tells us that our sins now, because of the second goat, this inheritance that belongs to you as a believer, that, that Isaiah says this way, our sins have separated us from God and have hidden, he, because of that, God has hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. 
So that's, that's where we feel that. We feel when we try to come into the presence of God that because I'm dirty, because I'm un, unclean and impure, that something is blocking that channel, that I long to hear from God, but I can't, right? This is what the world experiences, what I experienced before I met Jesus. So in this moment, Jesus is placed on, on the cross. He's, he's chosen to go to the cross. In this moment, when Jesus dies, when he said it's finished, what happens is he is cut off from God. Why? Because the sin of all of humanity was placed upon him, and all of a sudden, all that sin is upon him, and it separates. And that's why he says, he says um, why have you forsaken me? He says this on the cross, why have, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had never sinned. Jesus had never experienced a moment of being cut off from God, but in that moment, he was on your behalf. We had lived cut off from God, and because of what Jesus has done, he wants to bring you back into the presence of God. So the second goat takes away our sins from us, takes them far from us. This is how he, has, how he says it in one place in Psalm 103. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has removed our transgressions from us. So remember, in Psalm, it's promising and speaking to the Messiah, and we take that for granted. But remember, in their day, in Psalm 103, when, when this psalm came out, it's, not, it, it's prophesying of Jesus to come, but it's speaking of what would happen on the Day of Atonement. So let me read it to you again. As far as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So east starts with east, as far as the east is from the west. Why? Because when they sent that goat out, when all the sin was placed on it from the people of Israel, your sin and my sin, if we were there, is placed on it. It went east and it kept going. And the idea behind it was when that goat finally went over the cliff or it went out into never to be able to come back again, they sent a relay back through those different people. They would send a relay back and the whole congregation of Israel began to celebrate. Why? Because their sin now was as far as the east is from the west at least for one more year, or at least until they sinned again and brought it back on themselves. So I, I, Isaiah describes this as casting all our sins behind his back. Prophet Micah says he will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea, never to remember them anymore. So let me ask you, do you think God has a problem with remembering things? <laughs> right? So, so it's not talking about he doesn't know you sin. That's not, what, that's not true. He does. Of course he knew. He, he knew before the foundations of time. What does it mean then that he remembers your sin no more? That it doesn't come up. Why? Because they've been taken away. And what Jesus has done, your sin has been taken away. Listen to 1 John uh, 1 verse 7. It says, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And listen to this. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. All. Past, present, future. So when I'm studying this, as I was studying this, I was watching, I was telling Karen this this morning. I was watching a preacher. He's a really good preacher. Um, he was new. I hadn't seen him before. He was fun. He was exciting. He gave great illustrations, and he talked about these two goats. And as he was talking about these two goats, he talked about the one where the one was killed on our behalf. It was, it, it was representative of the death that we should have died, and he takes it on. And then he gets to the second goat, and he talks about how it was sent out, and he goes through this whole elaborate picture and illustration. And then he said this, that's what you and I have to do. 
that at some point Jesus paid for our sin. But let's be honest, you've sinned since. So at some point, you need to put away your sin. And my heart broke, not just for his people, but because this is the message so often that we hear in the modern church today. And it's a mixture. Not, it's a mixture of grace. It's not pure law, right? I don't think it's that. There's some who are, but usually they're so far gone and so legalistic, they're pretty easy to spot. But what it does is it, it, it preaches this mixture of law and grace. The grace is, is really, really amazing and really good. But let's be honest. You, there's some things that you need to do. And see, that's absolutely anti-grace. It's anti-Jesus. Anything that you have to do to add to what Jesus did takes away from what Jesus did. And you can't have it both ways. You hear this in the church, here's another way you hear it all the time, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Now, I know what you think you mean, but you got to stop saying dumb things, right? Because when you say, I'm a sinner saved by grace, you are mixing the law with grace, and Paul was so adamant about that that in one church he said, because circumcision was, was, was representative of, what, of, the, of the Jewish law, it was set apart, it was, it was a, a very specific thing that set Israel apart from everybody else, but it was something that you could do to, to separate yourself. And Paul was so adamant about that, he said this, he said, I wish that you would go all the way and just finish the job, emasculate yourself. Now, this was a male-dominated culture, and they understood exactly what he meant when he said that. And part of it was take away your ability for pleasure, your ability to make children, for an inheritance, to make life. It was representative and symbolic because what Paul was saying is if you try to add something to Jesus, you don't understand Jesus. In the book of Hebrews, go read it. Hebrews 9 and 10 especially, when you go read this, he was, Paul was talking to Jewish people who were tasting to see if God was good in Christ. They were trying it out. They were, they were like going to Sam's Club and they were tasting. You know, it's like, oh, do I want to buy the whole product? So I'm just tasting it right now. And what he spoke to them over and over again, Hebrews was all about Jesus being superior to the angels. He goes and he talks about he's superior to the high priest because think about this. When the high priest went in, if he was unsure that he'd done the ceremony appropriately, then he died, they drug him out, and they sent in a new high priest. So he went in with trepidation to offer those sacrifices. Fear was constantly there with him. So here's the thing. Why does this matter to us? Why is this so important? And why am I spending so much time on expiation of all things, right? There's so many other things we could talk about. And it's this. You can actually live as a believer without guilt, without shame, and without condemnation. My question is, are you? Are you? So here's the scripture, Romans 8, 4, as I, as I wrap this up. It says, there is therefore, we know this, there is therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So it's, it's, you can't just say, hey, Jesus died for the whole world and so I'm okay. No, you're not okay. He died for the whole, whole world, but you have to receive him by faith. You have to believe that what he did takes your sin away. And if you don't, if you don't have put your faith to what Jesus does, you're not in Christ. You're still outside of Christ. And all of the wrath of God abides upon you. All of your sin has separated you far from God, even if you go to church, even if you're a pastor. It doesn't make any difference. 
Sacrifice, the, the, the economy of the kingdom is blood and nothing else. Not your moral, moral behavior, not doing better, not turning over a new leaf, not I'm, I've got a New Year's resolution. None of those things are good enough. And there's a reason for that because all it does, the Bible says our righteousness is like filthy rags before the Lord. Why? Because it's, it's actually acting like we haven't sinned, right? And the whole picture is you have to understand to really receive Jesus as your Savior, you have to understand your need for a Savior. And if you don't understand what your sin cost God, if you don't understand, and, and that was why it was symbolically pictured all the time, every day, morning and evening in Israel, this symbolism of the sacrificial system was a reminder that your sin cost somebody their life. Right? And here's the beauty of it. Jesus loves you so much that he was willing to offer his life for you. You're not insignificant. You do matter. He made you. The Bible says he dreamed you up. In his mind, before anything ever existed, he dreamed you up. He had a holy plan, a plan that was set aside just for you. The power of the cross is so unbelievable. It goes on in Romans 8. It says, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Verse 3 says, for what the law was powerless to do. In other words, the law could show show you your need for a Savior, but could never save you. And so your rules and your regulations in our modern culture, especially in the South, moralism, what I do, I'm trying to do better. Lord, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Lord, I'm really sorry this time. (laughs) And you are. You are sorry. But it doesn't matter. If you would lean into and say, God, you know what? I know that I'm not made for sin. I know you didn't. This is not my identity, but it is what I did. And you understood that Jesus had paid the price for you, that you can come boldly into the throne room of grace for help in time of need. Then how you understand how you manage that moment is imperative to you as a believer. So let me get into this. This is 1 John 4.13. This is how we know that we live in him and he's in us. He's given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. We've seen it. We know it, right? If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. So do you have confidence? On the day of judgment, when you stand before the Lord, when everything is all said and done, what are you going to say? I tried really, really hard. You think that's going to be enough? I'll tell you what I'm going to say. It's all Jesus. God, thank you so much that you sent your son, and I needed his power. I needed what he did on the cross. Thank you that you made a way where there wasn't a way. He finishes out this. He says, in the world, in this world, We are like Jesus. Nobody wants to say that. (laughs) You are like Jesus. You're not Jesus. If If you think you're Jesus, like that guy in Florida, you need a mental health evaluation, right? But you are like him. In what way? You are also a son. You have an inheritance. He goes on, he finishes out. Perfect love drives out fear. Listen to why. Because fear has to do with punishment. So here's what happens. Here's how you know. 
if you really understand expiation, that your sins have been taken away, but also the guilt and the shame and the condemnation has been removed. This is how you know. When you come before God, how do you come? How do you come? Well, I come reverently. Good, that's not a bad idea. But how do you come? Do you come, like Hebrews says, with confidence? Because if you're honest, in your own ability, you could never come with confidence. But because of what Jesus has done, and you have received that fully, that your sin has been fully, has been fully paid for, past, present, and future, then you can come boldly before the Lord. This is Hebrews 4.16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. It literally means bold frankness. In other words, I can come as if I have never sinned, right? I know I did, and I know Jesus sacrificed himself for me, so I come with a humility that is deep into the core of who I am because I know it's not on me. I didn't do it. But I come with massive confidence because I am confident of what Jesus has done on my behalf. And so when I come before him, listen to what it says. If, here's the difference. If you don't understand this, you come before God and this is what you say, Lord, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And so your identity is settled in sin, not in God. You understand? And so when you come, you won't ask for help. You know why? You're too ashamed. You're too full of guilt. There is no confidence. You won't ask for help. You just feel horrible all the time. So my story was, even as a pastor, I, I couldn't get my head wrapped around expiation. And so what I did is I lived this low-grade fever, constant low-grade fever of guilt, shame, and condemnation. And I, I felt like I would do well, and then I would sin, and then I would, you know, maybe I didn't go under the line because I wasn't sure about my theology of once saved, always saved, just yet. So maybe if it was a really bad sin, I went under for a little while, and I wasn't saved, and I had to earn it back somehow. I'm just telling you my journey. And when I understood expiation, when I sin, the Bible says I have an advocate with the Father. So this is what I do now. When I sin, I say, God, that is not who I am. I'm, that is not my identity. I, I see a pattern of something coming up that seems like something that happened before I became a believer or I'm giving in to temptation. There could be a million reasons. <clears throat> but this is what I do. I say, Lord, this is not who I am. Help me understand why I'm doing something that is totally against my nature. And when I've done that, can I tell you what the Lord does every single time? He begins to talk to me about why I have been broken. And he begins to bring wholeness because he begins to speak life into me. You've been broken, so you break other people. You've been sinned against, so you sin against. But at some point, the cycle is broken, and the only way it can be broken is because of what Jesus did on the cross and that I finally make a decision to say it is mine. It is finished. It is always going to be finished. It is never not going to be finished. It is done. I am his. I belong to him, and he belongs to me. What begins to happen? Man, you get bold. As a man, I begin to pray over my family. I begin to pray. You know what happens if I get caught in, in something? I look at something I shouldn't look at online. The enemy comes and beats me down and says, how in the world can you think you can lead your family if you're doing something like that? And I just come to him and go, you are a liar and the truth's not in you, right? Quote scripture to him because that's what Jesus did. And then I come back and go, I'm not qualified to lead my wife because I'm amazing, although I'm amazing. I'm qualified because Jesus said I'm qualified. Any amazing that I am is because what Jesus has done in me over the last 35 years as a believer. And we cannot do it. We should not even try 
without Jesus. So let me end with this. How does this affect how you pray? How does it affect what you go after, what you believe God for? You say, I'm trusting God for a, a better job. Are you really? Do, do you feel like I can only get a job, a better job if I deserve it? Because if that's the case, at what point do we quit, right? Because at some point you're going to look at yourself and go, I don't deserve that. I don't deserve X amount of dollars an hour because of this or this or this. Don't get me wrong, you need to be qualified. But at some point, Jesus is the one who qualifies you in your identity. This, let me finish with this. This is James 1, 5, and 8. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, this is James speaking to Christians, if any of you lack wisdom, in other words, wisdom is how God operates in the world today through my life and through decisions that I make based on his character and his nature and his principles and who he is, right? That's wisdom. So if any of you lacks that, you should ask God. But listen to what it says about this, about asking God for anything. It says, who gives generously. You should ask God. This is God's nature. He gives generously, listen, without finding fault. So can you ask for something big? Can you ask for more? Can you say, God, I, would, I, would, I mean, maybe your motives aren't 100% pure. Maybe they're 98% pure. But you feel that twinge of it's not 100% pure. What well, turns out, that it's good news that God doesn't find fault with you then, huh? Because otherwise, how would he answer any of our prayers? But if we could come, wisdom. We said, God generous, gives generously to all without finding fault. Listen, and it will be given to you. It is, it, this is a fact. God will give you what you need to do what he's called you to do. Join, lean into the kingdom and everything you need will be given. It goes on. It says, but when you ask. So James is saying, some of you guys are wondering why it's not happening in your life. And I'll bet this morning, some of you guys are wondering, why isn't, why aren't things working out the way I think they ought to work out? Well, first of all, your opinion is just as bad as my opinion, so stop having one, right? Go get God's opinion about how life should be. Go find God's pattern about what ought to be. If you do God's thing God's way, get, guess what you get? You get God's results, right? But listen to it. It says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. I love how he puts those two in contrast. You have to believe 100%. And by the way, don't doubt either. Right? Like it's literally the same thing. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Listen, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Do you know what the goal of the, of the devil, I believe, in the modern church is to make Christians unstable and double-minded? And that's why the enemy introduces grace and the law. It appeals. Listen, the, the law appeals to me because it's something I can do to earn my own way in the world. Our, our whole, whole world is filled with that. But it is not the kingdom way. And the as sooner you get this, the sooner you'll begin to ask in confidence, not based on how good you're doing this week, but on how good a Savior Jesus has been and is. Amen? So what's your inheritance in this? Not just that Jesus took the death that belonged to you, but he, he gave something. We're going to get into this next week about how he gives us favor. It's part of it that gives us favor. But he doesn't just take away our sin. He takes away the guilt, the shame, and the condemnation of our sin if you let him. But if you don't, you get to carry it.
So I want to challenge you. It's going to affect how you lead your family. It's going to affect how you do your job. It's going to affect how you do everything. It's going to affect how you, how you speak to your kids. It's going, to affect, uh, it's going to affect how you do what you do with your money. It's going to affect every aspect of your life. And if your identity is settled in, I'm never good enough, then you're never going to ask for anything more. And you're always going to be underpowered and overwhelmed. But if you lean into this and say, Jesus, I'm asking, not because I deserve it in my, own, in my own righteousness. I don't have any of that. But because you promised that if I would lean into you, if I would seek the kingdom, if I would come after your ways, if I would lead my family the way you wanted me to lead them, if I would work the way you wanted to work, if I would give, if I would use my money the way you designed me to use my money, if I will lean into your ways, then everything I have need of, you not will provide, you have already provided. It is my inheritance because of the cross. You will pray differently. You will lead your family differently. And I pray that you will. Amen? Stand with me. I am excited about this series because I really believe if we can ever get believers to stop being double-minded, then they begin to pray and begin to lean in, to begin to go after things that they don't deserve, but they get because of what Jesus did. Amen? So Lord, we just come and say thank you. God, you are amazing and what you did on the cross, your grace is amazing. You took away, Lord, the fear of death, Lord, because you paid that penalty for us. Lord, but you also took away the guilt and the shame and the condemnation. Lord, that I don't have to carry that anymore. So Jesus, thank you that you've taken and you've wiped that away and that I can come boldly, I can come smiling into the throne room of grace because I have a Father who's loved me since before the foundations of time and made a way knowing what I would do, knowing how I would sin. Lord, you came and you gave your life for me at my worst. How much more, Lord, are you going to work in me as I lean into you and lean into your promises and lean into your character and your nature? So, Lord, remove this identity that's founded in sin, Lord, and replace it and found it as a son, Lord, not even as a servant to you as a father, but as a full-fledged son with all of the inheritance, even though I've not deserved it. Jesus, thank you for what you did on the cross. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, thankfully, you know, when it comes to our salvation or redemption, it's, it's Jesus plus nothing. Uh, it's, it's nothing that we, we can add on to it. You know, our, our righteousness, our holiness is, is given to us freely, and there's nothing we can add to it to make us more holy or more righteous. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Hopefully this week you can, you can uh, either, if you don't realize it already, come to realize it, you know, that, that Jesus has done everything for us, you know, and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you get a chance to, to share that with someone else. Um, we appreciate you coming this morning. Hopefully, you know, God's spoken to you, or, or if you need prayer or anything like that, we're happy to pray for you. If you're online, we'd love to, to you know, pray for you. You can send us an email or shoot us a message. Uh, anyway, hope you have a great week. Be blessed. We love you, and we hope to see you next week.